choice of the lives of those whom God chose and whom God uses. And it represents not only them at their best, but it also records their, them at their worst as well. That's the Bible for us. It's not airbrushed, but it contains stories of the people whom God chose and whom God uses. And it shows those people to us not only at their best of times, but also at their worst of times. Now, there are two controlling passages that I want us just to keep at the back of our minds as we seek to make sense of this passage. Um, they are both recorded in the New Testament. The first one is Romans 15, verses 4. It says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we come to this passage in the light of what Paul is saying here. But also we come in this passage, to this passage, in the light of what Paul says to Timothy as he reminds him in the second book of Timothy, you have, been, you have become convinced of this. You've known this from since you were a little boy, namely that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, the expectation for you and I as we study the Bible both the Old and the New Testament, is that God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, may be pleased to use his word, which he has saved for us and given to us, that he may use it in order that we might endure, that we might be encouraged, and that, that we might have hope but also that we might understand salvation. So that includes the chapter that we have read. It is here for us to help us understand salvation. Now that's the broader understanding of Scripture. Maybe it still doesn't resolve your question about this chapter, why is it here? What is it that it's meant to teach us? What is it that is meant to give us as our takeaway when we leave this um, building later this morning? Well, this chapter is here. That there would be no doubt for all of us that sin brings disaster and destruction into human lives. That's the takeaway for us this morning. If somebody asks, what are we meant to learn from the second book of Samuel chapter 13, the story of Amnon and Tamar, we are meant to, be, to learn that sin 
brings destruction to human lives. It brings disaster. To turn back to God and reject his law, to seek to go our own direction, will bring us or bring our lives into chaos and darkness, as we have seen. So what we are seeing here in this second book, chapter 13, is the ripple effects of King David's sin. And that sin, not only does it affect him as a person, but it is now extended to the next generation of his lineage. We see here Amnon who is consumed with lust, skimming to violate his sister. Now, we concluded our study in the book of Samuel in chapter, in chapter 12, which concluded by David returning to Jerusalem. And we learned there in chapter 12 that God in his mercy had forgiven David's sin. The sin which he was involved in, the sin of adultery and the sin of murder, which is recorded in chapter 11 of the second book of Samuel. So we made note of this fact that even though God has forgiven David of his sin and of adultery and murder, the consequences of his sins will going to follow him for as long as he lives. That was the conclusion that we drew from chapter 12 of our study. And so we are helped in understanding why the consequences of this sin will carry on by Alec Motia in his commentary where he says, repentance is like fetching back a stone that has been thrown into a pool of water. In so much, as much as the stone can be recovered, but the ripples go on spreading. So what we're seeing here in this chapter is the spread of the ripple effects of David's sin recorded in chapter 11, 12, and chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, him being confronted by Nathan. So as Nathan confronts him, telling him that God is going to forgive him, he leaves something that will stay and remain with David. It's the case that will remain with David, recorded in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. And it's quite a scary curse that will befall David. The sword will not depart from your house because, okay, because of vet spiced, okay, I don't know what's that word. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the light, in the sight of this son. 
So it's a sorry saga that will follow David's life for as long as David lives. We've seen David at his best. We've met him as the man after God's own heart. We've seen that in the heart of God, there is an affection for David. There is interest in him. God has purposes and plans for David. But now those glory days are behind us. They are in the past. What we're beginning to see now is that the start of the curse that Nathan spoke to David is beginning, is beginning to tumble down on him, is coming down on him like a truck falling on David. So the chapter before us is not, is not meant to intrigue us, but rather it is supposed to cause us to be upset by it, to be disturbed by it. And for that reason, I'm not intending to double-click the story that we have. But rather, I want to follow the storyline without pushing extra and external structure to it. But rather to follow the storyline and pick up the areas of application as we follow it together. So in verses 1, we are told that now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister. How come she was so beautiful? Well, she was beautiful because God made her that way. In the same way God made Bathsheba beautiful, the same way God made Abigail beautiful, and it's the same way, it's the same God who fashions everyone in his own way and in his own plan. But what we're beginning to learn here is that as we have seen in the past, beauty has its own challenges. That's what we are beginning. Is, is the mic okay? Or is it giving us problems? problems? Not only it's challenging for those who are beautiful, as we see, but also for those who are looking at them. So what we're seeing here, we see this beauty of Tamar is attracting Amnon's affection and is attracting Amnon's attention. And which is something we know how it will end. In fact, the word love there doesn't seem to be right. And I'm not suggesting that it was mistakenly put into the scriptures. But if we interpret it that Amnon 
saw Tamar as a trophy. He liked her. He liked to spend time with her to take her out for coffee, maybe. He liked being around with her, maybe ride bicycles with her in the park. No, that's not what it means. Instead, what it means is that Amnon was intoxicated by Tamar. He was tormented by her. What he had was infatuation, something that held his mind day and night. Now, as we read the story, there is no sign that she was aware that this is how Amnon feels about her. There is nothing that suggests that, that she was alert. The problem for him, Scripture tells us that it was impossible for him to do anything. She was unattainable. She couldn't, he couldn't get her. So though he was consumed by her, he was consumed by the feelings of her. And we ask of ourselves, what kind of feelings did he have? And we presume that they are the same feelings David had when he was walking on the roof on that one afternoon. And as he was walking, he saw Bathsheba. And we know what happened, how that ended. And so that's most probably the same feeling that he had of Tamar. And the challenge for him is that there is nothing he could do with it. So we have here a story of what we call an unholy imagination. We have a story of self-gratification. We have a story of Amnon objectifying Tamar, bringing it down into an object. So for him, it's not just a Saturday fever, as we know the song, but it is rather an every night fever. He goes to bed thinking about it. Presumably he sleeps and he dreams of it. And he wakes up having this desire. He is tormented by it. Now, we learn from the story that Amnon had a friend. And uh, it's good for anyone to have a friend. But this time it seems that he had a not a good friend. And there is something here for us as young, for young people to learn that we choose our friends carefully. You see, because there are friends that it's easy to do good things in their company. And there are friends that it's easy to do bad stuff in their company. And we all know the difference. And everyone knows the difference, whether at school or in the neighborhood. And so it seems that this was the friend that was easy to do bad in his company. 
This friend was streetwise. He was clever. He was not necessarily academically clever, but he was street clever and street smart. He was an action man. And so he's been observing his friend that his face is somber. And he asked him, why is your face haggard? I don't know what that word means, but it suggests something that's very much undesirable. Why your face is haggard? And not only today, but morning after morning, you have this haggard face. I suspect it's the face we all have when we wake up and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we want to run away. And this was Amnon's face. It was haggard. And so he says, will you please tell me what's going on? And, and, and he tells him, he says, I love Tamar, my sister. And immediately, the action man has an action plan. He says, I have a plan, and this plan is going to involve David so that people will think that David knew about it, whereas he doesn't know about it. So the kind of friend Amnon needed here is Joseph, not Jonadab. Joseph, when he was in the similar situation, when he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. He ran and he said, how can I commit such a sin? That's the kind of friend Amnon needed, not Jonadab, but Joseph. And that's the kind of friend as a young person, when you find yourself in that space, you need, you need a Joseph. You need a friend who's going to quote to you Proverbs 5, who's going to tell you, you can't do that. As Tamar told him, this is not done in Israel. So he has an action plan, and he tells him to pretend that he is sick and when his father David comes to ask him, he must tell him, I am not well, and I need my sister Tamar to come and serve me in my house. And something very interesting, the message comes to David, and David does exactly as his son asks him. And again, Tamar obeys her father because she's, she's not anticipating anything. Maybe this is the decision David should have said to it, no, no. And maybe that's a lesson for us as parents, that maybe sometimes happiness may involve you not getting what you want all the time. Happiness is not you getting what you want all the time. But sometimes to know that, yes, I may want this, but it doesn't mean that everything that I want and desire, I should get it. And maybe us as well as parents to be wise in the decisions that we make, to be careful on our yeses and, and, and what we say yes to. Because now David finds himself tied into the story. Poor Tamar obeys her father, 
without knowing what is the plan in the end of this story. So when your father comes to you, tell him that I am sick and I want my sister to come and serve me. Not only to serve me, but I want her to come and prepare this cake in my sight and I want to receive it from her hand. Surely, there is something odd with that. David, as the father, should have said, I'm happy with her baking cakes for you, but with you alone in your house, as a woman, she is vulnerable. Surely David should have been able to say no. And so that day comes. She goes and prepares in his sight and she serves him and he refuses. And he tells her that everyone must go. The question for us is, what do we see when we look at Tamar in the kitchen? You know what we see? We see her beauty. We see her compassion. We see her baking skills. We see her servant-heartedness. But there's another question. What does Amnon see? As he lies there looking at Tamar in his kitchen preparing cakes. You know what he says? None of these virtues. All he is thinking about it's his plan. It's his plan. He doesn't see her beauty. He doesn't see her compassion for her sick brother. He doesn't see her skills. All he sees is his plan to come true. So he doesn't love her. He doesn't love her. He sees her only as an object. And the story doesn't end so, so beautifully. We are told that the hatred he had of him, of her, was greater than the love he's had of her. And we're told that in the version that I've used, he said to her, get up and go. But John Woodhouse says, the original says, it doesn't even use the woman. Get it out. And so that's how the story ends. And she leaves as a desolate in her brother's house. What are we meant to learn from this? Well, we are meant to learn that sin brings disaster and destruction in human lives. But also we are meant to learn, practically speaking, to know that the consequences of our sin will follow us. The kind of decisions that we make, the kind of decisions that we make as fathers have implications in them. But David here 
is like us. He is broken like us. And he reminds us of the king who will be born in the house of Bethlehem, who is flawless, who has no sin in him. And that's the king, ultimately, we are to look to him, not David. The one who brings people like Tamar and welcomes them in his presence. So as a young person, the question is, what kind of friends do you keep? Do you keep friends like Amnon, who had Jonadab, who was an action man? And as a parent and a father, are you saying yes to every request that your children are presenting of you? Because you are more concerned about their happiness instead of the people they are becoming. Are they becoming godly people? Are they becoming people who can endure? Are they, can, are they becoming people who are pursuing God and godliness instead of pursuing their desire at whatever cost? And when we do that, we are told that we are inviting to ourselves consequences that will bring disaster in our lives. Let's be quiet for a moment. But Jesus, we, we thank you that we sang before of your amazing grace that saves, saves a wretch like us. And Father, we pray that we will be able to know the truth of this passage this morning. That we'll live in pursuit of wisdom instead of quick and short answers. Help us, Lord, to surround ourselves with people who are like Joseph, people who will quote to us proverbs and remind us that people of God don't do certain things. As we now come around your table, we ask you to help us to remember that we come as forgiven people. For you are the king that is above all other kings. You know no sin. You are holy and you're calling us to holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.